Mr. Chairman, one of my brothers, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, this is, I'm very honored, I feel very honored, it's an honor to me to be able to come back to the militant labor forum again this evening. It's my third time here. I was just telling my brother up here that probably tomorrow morning the press will, will try and make it appear that this little chat that we're having here this evening took place in Beijing or someplace else. They have a tendency to discolor things uh, in that in that way to try and make people not place the proper importance upon what they hear, especially when they're hearing it nowadays from persons whom they can't control, or as my brother has just pointed out, persons whom they consider irresponsible. But it's the third time that I've had an opportunity to uh, be a guest on the Militant Labor Forum, and I always feel that it is an honor. And every time they open the door for me to do so, I will be right here. The, the, mil the militant newspaper is one of the best in New York City. In fact, it's one of the best everywhere you go today because everywhere I go, I see it. I saw it even in Paris about a month ago. Uh, they were reading it over there, and I saw copies of it in some parts of Africa where I was during the summer. I don't know how it gets there, but if you put the right things in it, what you put in it will see that it gets around. Tonight, during the few moments that we have, we're going to have a little chat, like brothers and sisters and friends and probably enemies, too about the prospect for peace or prospect for freedom in 1965. If you notice, I almost, almost slipped there and said peace. Actually, you can't separate peace from freedom. Anybody, no one can be at peace unless he has his freedom. You can't separate the two. And this is the thing that makes 1965 so explosive and so dangerous. The people in this country who in the past have been at peace and been peaceful were that way only because they didn't know what freedom was. They let somebody else define it for them. But today, 1965, you find those who have not had freedom uh, and not in a position to define freedom, they're beginning to define it for themselves now, and as they get in a position intellectually to define freedom for themselves, they see that they don't have it. And it makes them less peaceful or less inclined toward peace. So in discussing this topic tonight, Prospects for Freedom, in 1965, I think we have to go back at least 12 years or 10 years to the time when the struggle of the black man in America began to be projected into the limelight, not only in this country but throughout the world. It started primarily with the Supreme Court decision, so-called desegregation decision, and I should say so-called desegregation, so-called decision, because uh, there has been some doubt as to what they really handed down. 
One of the main ingredients in the struggle of the black man in America for the past 12 years has been the black Muslim movement. No one can, can uh, deny the role that the black Muslim movement has played in America during the past 12 years has been one of the main ingredients in the uh, stepped up militancy on the part of black people throughout this country. No matter what direction the black Muslim movement itself was headed in, no matter what its own organizational philosophy was, and no matter what other people thought about it, no matter what their personal opinions were of the black Muslim movement, still it cannot be denied that that movement, because of its uncompromising stand and uncompromisingly militant approach to things, uh, forced other civil rights organizations to be more militant than they normally would have been, and forced many of the civil rights leaders definitely to be more militant than they ever would have thought of being. So the, the militancy of the black man in America during the past 10 years, in my opinion, can be traced largely to the existence and presence of the movement, which I'm referring to now for purpose of identification as the black Muslim movement. Its contribution to the black struggle for freedom in this country was militancy. It made many of our people dare to get loud for the first time in 400 years. Many of the black leaders of the civil rights movement dare to get loud for the first time. I mean really loud for the first time in, in 400, nearly 400 years of our being in this country. They got more militant than they intended to be, and they made many of the people become more militant than they intended for the people to be. It had a chain reaction effect that actually got out of control somewhat because the leaders themselves never intended and never do intend for our people to go too far. Their primary purpose in our midst has always been to contain our struggle, not lead our struggle. Group of which seldom are they seen until the irresponsible elements in the black community begin to explode. And then they go all the way around the country to grab one of them from wherever he's traveling and bring him in to cool things down, to tell us to be cool or tell us to take it easy, don't rock the boat. This is their function. This is their role. At least it has been up until recent times. They never have been put in the role that they're in with the intention by the by the one who puts them there of them leading us into any uncompromising un, uh, and militant uh, struggle. But the existence of some of the Muslim groups and the black nationalist groups that couldn't be controlled by the power structure downtown, and I only use the expression power structure downtown to keep from calling it what it actually is. These nationalist elements actually uh, serve their purpose in that sense. They gave respectability to the civil rights groups. 
and gave acceptability to the civil rights groups. Ten years ago or more, the NAACP was looked upon as a, a radical leftist, almost subversive movement. And then when the black Muslim movement came along, the power structure said, thank the Lord for Roy Wilkins and the NAACP. True. Pick up any newspaper that was printed ten years ago and read what was being said about CORE and NAACP and Urban League and some of these other groups. They were considered irresponsible. They were considered moving too fast. They were considered almost extremists. And then when they looked around one day and found someone talking about all of them are devils, they were all night looking up Roy Wilkins and James Farmer and the Right Reverend Dr. King and some of the others to soothe them and keep them thinking that all of our people didn't, didn't think like that. So it did contribute its part in the struggle. It made Roy Wilkins acceptable and honorable and responsible. And sometimes today I think he's forgotten what we've done for him. <laughs> this is one of the reasons why Tom and Boya has lasted so long in Kenya. Uh, during the Mau Mau uprising, when white people were scared to death, not only in Kenya, but throughout Africa, and not only in Africa, but throughout the world. Because there were people who looked just like the Kikuyu right here in New York, in Mississippi, and other places. When, uh, when Mau Mau was on the rampage, and Jomo Kenyatta was given the image of a monster, because his own image was so ghastly in, in the sight of whites, the image of Tom and Boya immediately became acceptable because Kenyatta seemed to be so irresponsible, and Boya became responsible. He became acceptable, responsible, you know, and made everybody happy. So they supported him, they backed him up, made him prominent throughout the world. Kenyatta made him, he didn't make himself, and he's in, he was intelligent enough to know it. So when Kenyatta got out, he supported Kenyatta he realized that the contribution of Kenyatta made him what he was. And because he was intelligent enough, he, had, he was blessed with sufficient insight to see the role that Kenyatta and the Mau Mau played in his own uh, prominence, an image of respectability and acceptability. He continued to support Kenyatta, and today he's still a part of Kenyatta's government. And I must take time right here to point out that that's a good study in itself. It took the Mau Mau to bring independence not only to Kenya, it took the Mau Mau to bring independence to most of Africa. When a man is sad over his miserable condition, he does nothing to change it. Sadness doesn't change anything. It's only when he gets mad that he changes it. It takes madness to change it. One of the things I noticed when I was in Africa traveling around, I noticed many Africans who were still colonized, still exploited, 
silly oppressed. And one of the things all of them had in common was they seemed sad. They would discuss their sad plight, but they weren't ready to really do anything to change it. They seemed to be waiting on some miracle. But the contrasting difference between them and what happened in Kenya, the Kikuyu got mad. They just didn't care what the consequences were. They knew they cared nothing about legality, morality, or anything. All they knew was that they were being oppressed unjustly, illegally, immorally. And because of this unjust, illegal, immoral oppression that they were suffering, they came to the conclusion that they would be within their rights to bring it to a halt by any means necessary. And they adopted those means. When they began to use these means in their struggle for freedom, the, the press of the West began to project them in a very negative image. They were freedom fighters. They were African patriots fighting against oppression. They weren't fighting against a legal government. They weren't fighting against a moral society. They were fighting against a, uh, a colonial power, an imperialist power, uh, a vulturist society. And this vulturous society, with its control of the press and its, and its uh, allies here in the United States, who also control much of the press, projected these freedom fighters, these African patriots, uh, in the image of savages, cannibals, terrorists, some as criminals, actually. And they projected Jomo Kenyatta in an image worse than all. But the Mao Mao weren't image conscious. They weren't. Uh, status seekers. They weren't social climbers. They wanted freedom. And they came to a conclusion at a point in their journey that the only way there was to get it was the way they did it. And they got it. I admire them for that. I respect them for that. Now that they are free, Jomo Kenyatta, whose image was that of a monster four years ago, is the president of Kenya. He's respected. Uh, so much so that when the hostages were being held in Stanleyville, and no one else dared to do anything about it, they called on Jomo and asked him would he sit down and mediate between the American ambassador, Atwood, there in Kenya, and uh, Tom Kanza from Stanleyville. The same man that the West had projected as a monster. They had to call on him. And when you go to Kenya today, you will find white people in Kenya praying that Kenyatta doesn't die. The same year they're praying, and they should, uh, they are praying that he doesn't die. The same man that a few years ago was projected as a monster, as an extremist, as being irresponsible. Now they say he's the most responsible head of state on the African continent. So the difference between being projected as an extremist or a monster is only only depends upon who controls the projection. If you project your own image, then you are able to project a positive image. But when your enemy is your master, and when your enemy masters the press that's going to build, create this image and project it abroad, then naturally your enemy is going to project you in the image of a monster. So I say, and I must say, because a reporter was asking me a few moments ago to either confirm or deny the statement that mentioned where I said we need a Mau Mau in the United States. I never would deny that. Why, we need more than a Mau Mau in the United States. 
mean, actually, a person have a lot of nerve to ask me that. In a society, in a society, I'm deviating now because he put me off the track. I got to deviate. In a society where in 1964, three civil rights workers can be murdered in cold blood, and the, not the Mississippi government, the federal government can't do anything about it. I say we need a mile mile. Negro educator can be murdered in Georgia, and they know who murdered him, and the government can do nothing about it, I say we need a Mau Mau. <laughs> and I'll be the first to join it. And a lot of people that you don't think go for it will line right up behind me. <laughs> So getting back to the black Muslim movement, the, you have to understand it in order to understand pretty much what has taken place in the civil rights movement in this country during the past 10 years, and in order to understand what might take place in 1965. The black Muslim movement attracted the most militant young black people in this country, the most restless, the most impatient and the most uncompromising black men and women were attracted to the black Muslim movement. But the movement itself, as it began to grow, actually was maneuvered into a, a vacuum in that it, it represented itself as a religious movement and the religion under which it identified itself was Islam. And the people in the part of the world who also identified that as their religion did not accept the black Muslim movement as a bona fide Islamic or Muslim movement. They never did accept it as that. So it, put it, it, it was put in the position of going by a religion that rejected it, which put it into a vacuum or made it a religious hybrid. On the other hand, the government in Washington I guess that's where it is. Tried to label the black Muslim movement uh, as political. It used the press, it maneuvered the press to project the black Muslim movement in an image that would enable the government itself to, uh, to list it as political and therefore label it seditious and subversive and step in and stomp it out like it stomps out most bona fide freedom movements that appear in this country. So the black Muslim movement was not only a, a, a religious hybrid, but it became a political hybrid in that it was more political than religious, but at the same time it didn't take part in politics. It didn't take part in the civil rights struggle. It took part in nothing that black people in this country was doing to correct conditions that existed in our community other than it had a moral force that it it stopped our people from getting drunk and taking drugs and things of that sort, which is not enough. After you sober up, you're still poor. So it became in a vacuum, 
It had it actually developed, it grew, it became powerful, but it was in a vacuum. And it was filled with extremely militant young people who weren't willing to compromise with anything and wanted action. More action, actually, than the organization itself could produce. More constructive action and positive action than the hierarchy of the organization was qualified, actually, to produce. The main objective of the movement was land, but the, those in the movement were told that God would come and take them to that land. Well, for a time this was all right, but no visible means were ever detected by anyone in the movement that would enable us to see that a plan was afoot to make this objective materialize. It caused dissatisfaction. It caused dissension, which eventually developed division. And out of the division, immediately, those who left, uh, out of that division, or out of those who left, was formed uh, an authentic religious group known as Muslim Mosque Incorporated, which practiced the religion of Islam as it is practiced and taught in and Lahore and other parts of the Muslim world. But those who went into the uh, orthodox practice of the Islam religion in the Muslim Mosque Incorporated, at the same time we realized that we were black people in a white society. That we were black people in a racist society. We were black people in a society whose very political system was based and nourished upon racism, whose social system was a racist system whose economic system was nourished with racism. We were black people who wanted to be religious, who wanted to practice brotherhood and all of that, who wanted to love everybody and all of that too. But at the same time, that was a dream, you know, as my good friend the doctor said. So wanting brotherhood and wanting peace and wanting all these other beautiful things, we had to also face reality and realize that we were in a racist society that was controlled by racists from the federal government right on down to the local government, from the White House right on down to City Hall. Racism was what we were confronted by. So we knew that this was a problem that was beyond religion. And we formed another organization that was non-religious. And this organization was called the Organization of Afro-American Unity, or the OAAU. And we, we, we got the idea for it from travels and observation of the success that our brothers on the African continent were having in their struggle for freedom. They were getting free faster than we. They were getting their independence faster than we. They were getting recognition and respect even when they came to this country faster than we. So we had to find out what was happening. How were they doing it and what were they doing? So we could try a little bit of it. In the, on, on the African continent, the imperialists, the colonial powers had always divided and conquered. They had practiced divide and conquer. And this had kept the people of Africa and Asia from ever coming together. 
So on the African continent had appeared an organization known as the OAU, or Organization of African Unity. And this had been put together by a group of uh, highly skilled African intellectuals and politicians. Uh, and it was designed to make the African heads of state who had been kept apart and divided from each other by differences, petty differences, per, uh, personal differences. This organization prov provided an atmosphere in which these heads of state could submerge their differences and work together in areas where they could agree toward a common objective. And since we in America were confronted with the same divisive tactics from our enemy, we decided to call ours the organization of Afro-American unity, which would be uh, designed after the letter and spirit of the organization of African unity. In fact, we considered ourselves an offspring of our uh, parent organization on our mother continent. After it was formed, I spent five months in, in the Middle East and Africa, primarily for the purpose of getting better acquaint, acquainted with them and making them better acquainted with us, giving them a first-hand account of our problem and what our problem actually consists of. When I first got there in uh, July, I found some of them difficult to talk to. But by the time I left in November, I didn't find anybody difficult to talk to. And I might say that right here and now that one of the things that made the uh, objective more easily reached was America's identifying herself with Moish Shambi. Never could a government do anything more suicidal politically than the, this government choosing Moish Shambi as a bed partner in 1964. And the, the offspring of that adulterous act will be something that they never will be able to put under the rug. By the time I had returned, by the time I had returned in uh, last month, the Muslim Mosque Incorporated had received official recognition and support by all of the official religious bodies in the Muslim world, and the Organization of Afro-American Unity had also received recognition and support from all of the African countries uh, where I visited, and, and most of those where I didn't visit. The first thing I returned, I kept being asked the question by some reporters, <laughs> uh, we heard you change. And I, I would say, I was kind to the reporter, actually. I smiled and all. <laughs> but I would say to myself, how in the world can a white man expect a black man to change before he has changed? How do you expect us to change when you haven't changed? How do you expect us to change when the cause that made us as we are has not been removed? Why, it's infantile, it's immature, and adolescent on the part, on your part, to expect us to change 
to expect us to be dumb enough to change when you have not yet gone to the cause of the condition that makes us act as we do. You got the wrong man. It's true, I'm a Muslim, and I believe in brotherhood, and I believe in the brotherhood of all men, but my religion doesn't make me a fool. My religion makes me be against all forms of racism. It keeps me from judging any man by the color of his skin. It teaches me to judge him by his deeds and his conscious behavior. And it teaches me to be the right, be for the rights of all human beings, but especially the Afro-American human beings. Because my religion is a natural religion, and the first law of nature is self-preservation. And one of the things that our people have not been doing in this country up until now, we have not been uh, exercising the first law of nature. We have not thought of ourselves first. We have placed America first. We have placed America's interests ahead of our own. We have placed even the interests of whites ahead of our own. We have loved whites when they refused to love us. We have sought to move into their neighborhood when they did. we knew in advance they didn't want us there. We have crawled like animals at the feet of the white man in this country and been rejected. So that today, if you see us step back and get away from you, you can't blame us. You have to blame yourself or your mother or your father. If you don't want to accept the blame yourself, then put it on your mother and your father. But don't put it on us. So now to get to my talk. <laughs> About 1965 and the prospects for freedom. In 1964, oppressed people all over the world, in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America, in the Caribbean, made some progress. Northern Rhodesia threw off the yoke of colonialism and became Zambia, was accepted into the United Nations, the Society of Independent Governments. Miafalan became Malawi also was accepted into the UN, into the family of independent governments. Zanzibar had a revolution. <laughs> it threw out the colonialists and their lackeys, and then united with Tanganyika, what is now known as the Republic of Tanzania, which is progress indeed. I was there. It's one of the most beautiful countries and the best people that I was with. My good friend, Abdurrahman Mohammed Babu, was one of the architects of the revolution. And I find him to be a most highly enlightened human being. 
and a humanitarian and a lover of freedom. Also in 1964, the oppressed people in the South Vietnam area and that entire South uh, East Asia area were successful in fighting off the agents of imperialism. All the king's horses and all the king's men haven't enabled them to put North and South Vietnam imperialism. All the king's horses and all the king's men haven't enabled them to put North and South Vietnam back together again. <laughs> Little rice farmers, rice farmers, peasants with a rifle, and all the weapons of warfare, highly mechanized, jets, napalm, battleships, everything else, and they can't put those rice farmers back where they want them. Somebody's waking up. In the Congo also, the People's Republic of the Congo, headquartered at Stanleyville, fought the war for freedom against Shambi, who was an agent of Western imperialism. And by Western imperialism, I mean that which is headquartered in the United States, in the State Department. <laughs> in 1964, this government, subsidizing Shambi, the murderer of Lumumba, and Shambi's mercenaries, hired killers from South Africa, along with the former colonial power, Belgium, dropped paratroopers on the people of the Congo, used Cubans that they had trained to drop bombs on the people of the Congo with American-made planes. To no avail. The struggle is still going on, and America's man Shambi is still losing. All of this in 1964. Now, in thinking like this, it doesn't mean that I'm anti-American. I'm not. I'm not anti-American <laughs> or un-American. And I'm not saying that to defend myself, because if I was that, I'd have a right to be there after what America has done to us. This government should be lucky that our people aren't anti-American. They should get down on your hands and knees every morning and thank God that 22 million black people have, have not become anti-American. Because if anybody has a right to be anti-American, we have. You've given us every right to. And the whole world would side with us if we became anti-American. You know, that's something to think about. <laughs> but we're not anti-American. But we see we are anti or against what America is doing wrong in other parts of the world as well as here. And what she did in the Congo in 1964 is wrong. It's criminal. Criminal. And what she did to the American public to get the American public to go along with it is criminal. What she's doing in South Vietnam is criminal. 
She's causing American soldiers to be murdered every day, killed every day, die every day, for no, no reason at all. That's wrong. Now, you're not supposed to be so blind with patriotism that you can't face reality. Wrong is wrong, no matter who, who does it or who says it. Now, if I'm anti-American for saying that, then Wayne Morris is anti-American. Church senator from somewhere out there is anti-American. Whole lot of them in Washington, D.C. is anti-American. Uh, so I'm just telling you what I, I read the good senators said. <laughs> also in 1964, uh, China exploded her bomb, which was a scientific breakthrough for the oppressed people in China who suffered for a long time. I, for one, was very happy to hear that the great people of China uh, were able to display their scientific advancement, advanced knowledge of science, to the point where a country that is so backward, as this country keeps saying, and so, you know, behind everybody and so poor could come up with a, on a, with an atomic bomb. Why, I had to marvel at that. It, uh, made me realize that poor people can do it as well as rich people. <laughs> so all of these little advances were made by oppressed people in other parts of the world during 19 64. These were tangible gains. And the reason that they were able to make these gains, they, they realized that power was the magic word. Power against power. Power in defense of freedom is greater than power in behalf of tyranny and oppression. Because power, real power, comes from conviction. And it produces action, uncompromising action. It also produces insurrection against oppression. This is the only way you end oppression, with power. Power, the power, never, power never takes a back step, only in the face of more power. It doesn't do it with a, it doesn't, power doesn't back up in the face of a smile, or in the face of a prayer or in the face of some kind of non-violent loving action. Power, it's not the nature of power to back up in the face of anything but some more power. And this is what the, this is what the people have realized in Southeast Asia, in the Congo, in Cuba, in other parts of the world. The power recognizes only power. And all of them who recognize, realize this have made gains. Now here in America, it's different. When you compare our strides in 1964 with strides that have been made forward by people elsewhere all over the world, only then can you appreciate the great double cross experienced by black people here in America in 1964. The, the, the power structure started the new year out the same way they started that out in Washington the other day. Only now they call it, what's that, the Great Society? 
the great society. And last year, just uh, 1964, was supposed to be the year of promise. They opened up the new year in Washington, D.C., and in the City Hall, and in Albany, talking about the year of promise. Promise that black people would make advances in education, would get better schools, better school facilities, better teachers, that jobs would open up, there would be less black people in the unemployment line, that in areas of the South where we formerly had not been able to vote, we would be, we would be able to register and vote, that we would become socially acceptable to those who in the past did not consider us socially acceptable. But by the end of 1964, we had to agree that in, instead of the year of promise, instead of these promises materializing, they substituted devices to create the illusion of progress. And 1964 was the year of illusion and delusion. We received nothing but a promise. We received nothing that would actually solve the problems that we were confronted by in January of 1964. In 1963, they had used the trick, one of their devices, to uh, let off the steam of frustration was the march on Washington. They used that to make us think we were making progress. Imagine marching to Washington and getting nothing for it whatsoever. But it shows you how true the power structure is. It the people through the leaders as long as the people believe in the leaders. In 63, it was the march on Washington. In 64, what was it? The Civil Rights Bill. Right after they passed the Civil Rights Bill, they murdered a Negro in Georgia and did nothing about it. Murdered two whites and a Negro in Mississippi and did nothing about it. So that the Civil Rights Bill has produced nothing where we're concerned. It was only a, a valve, a vent, that would, that would enable us, that was designed to enable us to let off our frustration. But the bill itself was not designed to solve our problem. Since we see what they did in 1963 and we saw what they did in 1964, what will they do now in 1965? If the march on Washington was supposed to lessen the explosion and the Civil Rights Bill was designed to lessen the explosion, that's all it was designed to do. It wasn't designed to solve the problem. It was designed to lessen the explosion. Because everyone in his right mind knows there should have been an explosion. You can't have all those ingredients, those explosive ingredients that exist in Harlem and elsewhere where our people suffer and not have an explosion. So these are devices to lessen the danger of the explosion, but not designed to remove the material that's going to explode. What will they give us in 1965? I just read where they plan to make a black cabinet member. Yes, they have a new gimmick every year. They're gonna take one of their boys black boy and put him in the cabinet so he can walk around Washington with a cigar, fire on one end and fool on the other end.
And because his immediate personal problem will have been solved, he will be the one to tell our people, look how much progress we're making. I'm in Washington, D.C. I can have tea in the White House. I'm your spokesman. I'm your, you know, your leader. While our people are still living in Harlem in the slums, still receiving the worst form of education and the worst facilities in which to try and educate our children. This is the device that they will use. They'll make a black cabinet member. I read that's one of the gimmicks that they got going. But will it work? Can that one whom they are going to put down there step into the fire and put it out <laughs> when the flames begin to leap up? When people take to the streets in their explosive mood, will that one that they're going to put in the cabinet be able to go among those people? Or they'll burn him faster than they burn the ones who've been in. At the international level in 1964, up until 1964 and through 1964, what the, the device that they use, they send well-chosen black representatives to the African continent, whose mission it was to make the people on that continent think that all of our problems had been solved. They went over there as apologists. I saw some of them, trailed some of them, saw the results that some of them had left there. But their prime mission was to go into Africa, which is the most vital country uh, to the United States' interest. So these Toms, you're not supposed to call them Toms nowadays, they're Suyans. So these uncles were sent over there. Don't, don't bother the man. He's, he's doing his job. And because his immediate personal problem will have been solved, he will be the one to tell our people, look how much progress we're making. I'm in Washington, D.C. I can have tea in the White House. I'm your spokesman. I'm your, you know, your leader. While our people are still living in Harlem in the slums, still receiving the worst form of education and the worst facilities in which to try and educate our children. This is the device that they will use. They'll make a black cabinet member. I read that's one of the gimmicks that they got going. But will it work? Can that one whom they are going to put down there step into the fire and put it out <laughs> when the flames begin to leap up? When people take to the streets in their explosive mood, will that one that they're going to put in the cabinet be able to go among those people? Or they'll burn him faster than they burn the ones who've been in. When people take to the streets in their explosive mood, will that one that they're going to put in the cabinet be able to go among those people? Or they'll burn him faster than they burn the ones who've been in.
at the international level in 1964, up until 1964 and through 1964, what the, the device that they use, they send well-chosen black representatives to the African continent, whose mission it was to make the people on that continent think that all of our problems had been solved. They went over there as apologists. I saw some of them, trailed some of them, saw the results that some of them had left there. But their prime mission was to go into Africa, which is a most vital country uh, to the United States' interests. So these Toms, you're not supposed to call them Toms nowadays, they're Sweden. So these uncles were sent over there. Don't bother the man. He's, he's doing his job. He's going to put you on TV <laughs> so you can get investigated. <laughs> so these Toms uh, don't go to Africa actually because they want to explore or learn something for themselves, broaden their scope, or communicate between them, them between their people and, and our people over there, but they go primarily to represent the United States government. And when they go, they gloss things over. They tell how well we're doing here, how the Civil Rights Bill has settled everything and how the Nobel Peace Prize was handed down. Oh yes, that's how they tell it. <laughs> Actually, they succeed in widening the gap between the Afro-American and the African. The image that they leave there of the Afro-American is so obnoxious that the African ends up not wanting to identify with it or be related to it. And it is only when the nationalist-minded, African nationalist-minded, or black-minded uh, Afro-American goes abroad to the African continent and establishes direct lines of communication and lets the African brothers over there know what is happening over here and know that our people are not so dumb that we are blind to our tradition and position in this structure. Then the Africans begin to uh, understand us and identify with us and sympathize with our problems and to the point where they are willing to make whatever sacrifice necessary to see that their long lost brothers get a better break than we've been getting up to now. On the national scale during 1964, as I just mentioned, politically, the Mississippi Free, De uh, Freedom Democratic Party had its face flashed at Atlantic City at a convention over which Lyndon B. Johnson was the boss and Hubert Humphrey was the next boss and Mayor Wagner had a lot of influence himself. Still, none of that influence was shown in any way whatsoever 
when the hopes and aspirations of the people, the black people of Mississippi, were at stake. Though at the beginning of 64 we were told that our political ranks would be broadened, it was in uh, 1964 that the two white civil rights workers working with the black uh, civil rights worker was murdered. And well, the only thing that they were doing was trying to help the black people of Mississippi learn how to register. This is all. This is their crime. They were trying to show our people in Mississippi how to become registered voters. This was their crime. This was the reason for which they were murdered. And the, the, the most pitiful part about them being murdered was the civil rights organizations themselves being so chicken when it comes to reacting in a way that they should have reacted to the murder of these three civil rights workers. The civil rights groups sold those three brothers out, sold them out, sold them right down the river because they died in what has been done about it. And what voice is being raised every day today in regards to the murder of those three civil rights workers? It has been forgotten. You hear nothing else about it. And the only time it comes up is when J. Edgar Hoover calls one of the Negro leaders a liar and then another argument starts in motion and they then ask, what about the brothers who got murdered? But when it comes to the murder itself, it's forgotten, gone by, glossed over, and nothing has been done about. So this is why I say, if we get involved in the civil rights movement and go to Mississippi or any place else, to help our people get registered to vote, we intend to go prepared. We don't intend to break the law. Because when you're trying to register to vote, you're upholding the law. It's the one who tries to prevent you from registering to vote who's breaking the law. And you got a right. You got a right to protect yourself by any means necessary. And if the government doesn't want civil rights groups going equipped, the government should do its job. <laughs> Concerning the Harlem incident that took place during the summer when the citizens of Harlem were attacked, in a, a pogrom, how do you pronounce that word? Pogrom? Pogrom. That's what it was. I was reading about it over, I can't pronounce it, because it's not my word. 
But it, that, it, when the when the people of Harlem were the victims of that pogrom, that's your word. <laughs> During the summer, we had heard long before it took place that it was going to take place. We had gotten the word that there were elements in the power structure that were going to incite a riot, something in Harlem that they could call a riot in order that they could step in and be justified in using whatever measures necessary to crush the militant groups which were still considered in the uh, embryonic stage. And, and realizing that there was a plan afoot to instigate something in Harlem so they, they could step in and crush it, there were elements in Harlem who were prepared and qualified and equipped to retaliate in situations like that who purposely did not get involved. And the real miracle of the Harlem explosion was the restraint exercised by the people of Harlem. The miracle of 1964. I tell it to you straight. The miracle of 1964 during the incidents that took place in Harlem was the restraint exercised by the people in Harlem who are qualified and equipped and whatever else there is to protect themselves when they are being illegally and immorally and unjustly attacked. And an illegal attack, an unjust attack, and an immoral attack does not have, can be made against you by anyone. Just because a person has on a uniform does not give him the right to come and shoot up your neighborhood. No, this is not right. And my suggestion would be that as long as the police department doesn't use those methods in white neighborhoods, they shouldn't come to Harlem and use it in our neighborhoods. I wasn't here. I'm glad I wasn't here, because I'd be dead. They'd have to kill me. I'd rather be dead than to let someone walk around my house or in my neighborhood shooting it up where my children are, are, are in the line of fire. Either they die or I die. It's not intelligent. And it all started when a little boy was shot by a policeman. And he was turned loose, the same as the sheriff was turned loose in Mississippi when he killed three civil rights workers. I'm almost ending. I'm just taking my time tonight because I'm overworked. <laughs> and I'm taking my time. I'm taking my time. I'm not hurrying up on me. I hope that you don't misunderstand me when I say that, and I'm not advocating anything illegal against the police. I know good police, and I know bad police. I know policemen that bend over backwards to be human, and to protect other humans, and to treat people as if they are human beings. Then I know others who shouldn't be on the force. They're not qualified morally, either even mentally, 
Some of them not even psychologically. To be on the force. Well, those kind I don't go for. But those who can pass the test, <laughs> they're all right. We don't include them with the rest. While millions of our people are starving in this country, this government is spending billions of dollars abroad to feed other people. They're sending wheat over to Russia and Poland, some of those other places, and dumping a lot of it in the ocean to keep the market down while people are starving. This is something that doesn't add up. How are you going to have peace in 1965? And you're hungry, no job, welfare workers won't even work. <laughs> and you read where they're dumping while you go on the rampage. You think they're out of their mind. In 1965, we had still with us the slumlords, people who, don't, who own the houses but don't live there themselves. Usually they live up around the Grand Concourse or somewhere. They contribute to the NAACP, CORE, and all the civil rights organizations. Give you money to go out and picket, and they own the house that you're picketing. <laughs> and this bad housing conditions that continue to exist up there, they keep our people the victims of health problems high in infant and adult mortality rate. It's higher in Harlem than any other part of the country or part of the city. They promised us jobs and gave us welfare checks instead. We're still jobless. We're still unemployed. The welfare is taking care of us, making us beggars, robbing us of our dignity, of our manhood. So that I point out that in 1964, it was not a pie-in-the-sky year of promises as was promised in, the, in January of that year. Blood did flow in the streets of Harlem, Philadelphia, Rochester, some places over here in Jersey, and elsewhere. In 1965, even more blood will flow more than you ever dreamt. It'll flow downtown as well as uptown. Why? Why will it flow? Have the causes that forced it to flow in 65 or 64 been removed? Have the causes that made it flow in 63 been removed? The causes are still there. How can you sit around and, 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 and naively, in such a naive way, and make yourself think that things are getting better when the causes that created the bad conditions still remain? The only one whose problem is solved is the leader. They get the peace prize, while the people have no peace. Or as he himself said, while he's up on the mountain, 
the people are in the valley. <laughs> I'm going to tell you why it's going to flow. Then bring my little talk to a close. In 1964, 97% of the black American voters supported Lyndon B. Johnson, Hubert Humphrey, and the Democratic Party. 97%. No one minority group in the history of the world has ever given so much of its uncompromising support to one candidate and one party in the history of the world. So no one people, no one group has ever gone all the way to support a party and its candidate as did the people, the black people in America in 1964. Look how many people voted for Goldwater. Over 26 million. Why? When you when you when you deduct the non-white people from the total white population, you'll find out that white people were almost evenly divided between Goldwater and Johnson. Yes. Go get the total number of voters in this country and find out how many of them are white. Deduct the non-whites, the Puerto Ricans, and the Negroes, and the others, and you'll find out that white people didn't support Johnson like they want to brag that they did. The non-whites won for him 97%. And the first act of the Democratic Party, Lyndon B. included, in 1965, when the representatives from the state of Mississippi, who refused to support Johnson, came to Washington, D.C., and the black people of Mississippi sent representatives there to challenge the legality of these people being seated. What did Johnson say? Nothing. What did Humphrey say? Nothing. What did Robert Pretty Boy Kennedy say? Nothing. Nothing. Not one thing. These are the people that black people have supported. This is the party that they have supported. Where were they when the black man needed them last couple days ago in Washington, D.C.? They are, uh, they were where they always are. Twiddling their thumbs someplace in the pool room or in the gallery. So black people in 1964 will not be controlled by these Uncle Tom leaders. They won't be held in jail. They won't be held on the plantation by the overseers. They won't be held in the corral. They won't be held back at all. The frustration of these black representatives from Mississippi when they arrived in Washington, D.C. the other day, thinking, you know, that the great society was going to include them, only to see the door closed in their face like that. That's what makes them think 
That's what makes them realize what they're up against. It is this type of frustration that produced the Mau Mau. They reached the point where they saw it takes power to talk to power. It takes power to make power respected. It takes madness almost to deal with a power structure that's so corrupt. So corrupt. So in 1965, there should be a lot of action. Since the old methods haven't worked, they'll be forced to try new methods. If you read the article in this week's U.S. News and World Report, which is not the best magazine in the world, where it does tell, though, that the Big Six, they call themselves the Big Six, the uh, leaders of the black community who have been endorsed by the white community, the Big Six, they themselves are turning to Africa. Dr. King, Farmer, all of them are admitting that the problem of the black man in America is inseparable from the problem of the African. Dr. King and Mr. Farmer and the others, Roy included, Uncle Roy, are admitting that the problem of that the black man cannot get dignity in America until the black man has dignity on the mother continent. They're admitting this. They're admitting that the roots of the black man in America are still in Africa. They're admitting this. I was shocked to see them admit so much so soon, <laughs> so publicly. <laughs> I was shocked to see that they will say in public what they've always agreed to in private. I was shocked. But it shows that they themselves are undertaking a revolutionary approach to the problem. They're beginning to see that the problem of the black man in America no longer is a Negro problem or an American problem. It's a world problem. When they begin to identify our struggle with the struggle of the brothers on the mother continent, then these big six, Uncle Roy, are seeing the necessity of internationalizing the problem. Now, either they have to deny it or confirm it. But I don't think this magazine would say all what it has said and quote them, too. Here it has Dr. King saying, there is a growing willingness among U.S. Negroes to identify with the Africans. There is a sense of pride as American Negroes see positions of importance in the United Nations accorded courtesies which American Negroes are not accustomed to receiving in their own country. Dr. King talked. He was up on the mountain. <laughs> and he's there beginning to see that the only way the black man in this country will ever get any solution to his problem, it will have to be a solution which the government in Washington has no hand in. Because the government can't solve the problem. The government consists of crackers from Mississippi and Georgia and Alabama and, and, and Arkansas and Texas. For they are beginning to see that it is not we who should be taking 
our problem to Washington, but it is we who should be taking Washington to the United Nations. It is not we who have committed the crime. It is not we who have committed the crime. It is our government that has committed the crime. Our government has failed to protect our lives, to protect our property, to give us proper education. It has failed to even give us the proper facilities for education. It has failed to house us. It has failed, as the men there in the book up in uh, Boston, when they dumped all the tea in the sea, <laughs> taxation without representation has got to go. So I say in my conclusion, to read from another newspaper, many of you say, well, would we have the right to take the problem of the black man in this country before the UN? I say, yes, because. Here it says, this is in the Post a couple days ago, the Post is a New York paper, represents itself as liberal, which is a misrepresentation. It says, uh, House asked to condemn Soviet treatment of Jews. Representative Halpern of Queens urged the House today to condemn what he termed the odious and discriminatory treatment of the Jewish community in the Soviet Union. He drafted resolutions for introduction that would condemn Russia for persecuting, for the persecution of Jews and placed the House on record as favoring continued American efforts to obtain through the UN world condemnation and prohibition of anti-Semitism in treaty form. Soviet policy, Halpern said in a prepared speech, involves a premeditated effort to stamp out Jewish culture and religion. It is a deliberate policy, but also a, a, a secretive one. If this representative voted into office probably by many people sitting right here can go to Washington, D.C. and get that house, that governmental body, to stick its nose in what's happening to three million people all the way on the other side of the world and have that government brought into the United Nations and condemned for its abuse of the rights of those three million people, I say that the 22 million black people in this country are justified and within our rights to ask our brothers on the African continent to take this government into the United Nations and protect us. <laughs>